Arthur Balbert and Timo Brass and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, or my guests, my guests on this edition of the program, are twofold managing editor Dave Cameron and also senior editor Jeff Sullivan. Of course, Cameron typically makes a weekly Monday appearance during which he analyzes all baseball. Sullivan, for his part, a monthly appearance during which we become intimate with Jeff Sullivan's beautiful mind. The two of them appear in concert because Dave Cameron is moving from North Carolina to Oregon and has demanded Jeff Sullivan's assistance in that endeavor. I'm moving to Oregon, and I am driving my dog from North Carolina to Oregon, and I didn't want to do it by myself. So I said, Jeff Sullivan, you work for me. I tell you what to do. You fly to Kansas City, and you drive us through Kansas, because I don't want to do it. The two of them together, I thought it presented an interesting opportunity to have them appear at the same time. Does that experiment work? It's a question I'll answer with an anecdote. When I was young, four or five, I attempted to make banana juice using a combination of milk and orange juice. The result, as you can imagine, not only tasted nothing like banana, but in fact made me nauseous. It's quite possible that this edition of Fangraphs Audio will do the same for the listening public. In any case, we do get around to discussing certain matters relative to the pastime. For example, the sort of logical fallacies that one must employ to argue on behalf of any player besides Mike Trout for the American League MVP award. Why Fangraphs, after awarding the inaugural Player of the Year award to Clayton Kershaw, never awarded a second Player of the Year award to anyone and won't ever likely do it again. And finally, why are Sullivan and Cameron, why do they appear on the Ringers podcast? What are they doing over at the Ringer? Why are they talking to the ringer? All those dumb questions and more, but not many more answered in what follows. But first, a sponsor's message. The sponsor is SeatGeek and SeatGeek.com. You are probably intimately acquainted with the work and hassle that one must endure attempting to buy tickets to sporting events or concerts. What SeatGeek endeavors to do is to minimize or eliminate entirely that work and that hassle. Here's what they do. They aggregate tickets and ticket prices from all over the World Wide Web Make them available in one space so that it's always possible to get the best deal. What they do with SeatGeek is to assign a grade to every ticket that's available, thereby allowing the consumer to exploit inefficiencies in the ticket-buying market. And for what a SeatGeek famous, if not their honesty, unlike StubHub, SeatGeek never assesses any fees or mysterious fees, quoting you the same price for the beginning to the end of the transaction. For during this message about SeatGeek, what they have done is permitted me to offer a rebate, a $20 rebate. Here's how to claim it. What you do is you download the free SeatGeek app. You go to the settings tab, click add a promo code, enter the promo code FANGRAPHS. That's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code FANGRAPHS today for your nearest possible convenience. With which utterance the sponsor's message is complete. We turn now to a conversation with Dave Cameron and Jeff Sullivan. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? That same managing and senior editor, respectively, Dave Cameron, Jeff Sullivan. When does it begin? Right now. Talking to Ringer, and well, what do you uh, what do you say to Ringer? Huh? A certain Dave Cameron also talked to Ringer. In fact, he was the one who was invited in the first place. I just happened to be there. What are you guys talking to Ringer about? Baseball. Wh- whom? I know that seems uncommon to you, but it's something that other people like to talk about. Uh, who, who's uh, 
Who's ta- who are you talking to at Ringer? Ben Lindbergh and Mike Bowen. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Did that go well? Uh, I think so. Uh, well, you'd have to ask them. Yeah. Yeah. Went a little smoother than this one so yeah, far. That's right. They were a little more, uh, you know, um, technologically savvy. Oh, yeah, this, this has not been my fault thus far. Allow me to remind uh, you. I mean, the only variable that's changed since yesterday is the host. Have you guys? You guys are in some manner of safe house in, in the in the plains. Is that right? I think it's a safe house. Yeah, I mean, it hasn't fallen down yet. And we okay, just, where, where are you? Are you in Kansas City? Golden, Colorado. Oh, you're in Golden, Colorado. We were in Kansas City yesterday, and we drove through Kansas as fast as possible. Mm. There's a lot of Kansas in that state. There, yeah, Eastern Colorado is basically Kansas's twin too. I guess it wasn't as fast as possible. It was a very consistent 82 miles per hour. Yeah, it was. So, what's a weird thing that I did not know until I drove through that area is you really, when you're starting in the Midwest and going towards Colorado, Denver, for example. You know, one for me growing up in the East, I always imagined Denver was just a city that was deposited in the middle in the middle of mountains, but that's not true at all. No, it's not true. It's quite flat, and then the mountains are to the west. Yeah. Um, Tomorrow so we really drive through those mountains. What's this? Tomorrow we drive through those mountains. Yeah, so you're narrow. You're just like gradually going uphill uh, all the way from wherever, I don't know, Kansas City, for example, which I don't know how close Kansas City is to sea level, but relatively close? Relatively close, I believe. I think actually, but- yeah. If I remember looking at like ballpark elevation tables, I think Kauffman Stadium is pretty low. Right, Whatever. but of course, famously, Coors, uh, Coors is not low. It's a mile high. But there, I don't know if there are really any, if, uh, if there's any like obvious elevation in between the two. Is that, is that fair? Uh, I guess you could think of it like the curvature of the earth where you don't really see it, but you know that it's there. It, there were nine hours of driving. And so if you wanted to calculate the grade average of that, uh, we never felt like we were going up. Uh, I think actually the whole time we felt like we were going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> Although we did enjoy a pretty good fried chicken meal in Hayes, Kansas. That's true. Okay. Al's chickenette, right? Yeah, Al's chickenette. They served us a side of fries that weighed like six pounds. Were the, did you finish all those fries, like the Americans? We had like human portions, and then we offered a guy at the picnic shelter we were at fries. He rejected, he, he declined, so there we threw away like four pounds of fries. Okay. Well, that sounds like it. And you, will you uh, please inform the people what you're doing? I'm moving to Oregon, and I am driving my dog from North Carolina to Oregon, and I didn't want to do it by myself. So I said, Jeff Sullivan, you work for me. I tell you what to do. You fly to Kansas City, and you drive us through Kansas, because I don't want to do it. So you took the two theoretically most prolific writers, two of the most prolific writers for the site, took them and, you gave them the sa- yeah. and you gave them the same constraint. Yeah. Uh, this is after last week I wrote less than usual because I was packing up my house, and Jeff had jury duty. So we're really just yeah. doing this sink fangrass at this point. Yeah, this is all – I mean, and I want to say that in addition to all those problems, this is a doomed experiment, this particular conversation. Because uh, with, Je- with with you, Cameron, what we typically do is we analyze all baseball. Yeah, and with Jeff, you talk about nothing. We become we become intimate with his beautiful mind. Trojan horses. Yeah. I believe was the, was <laughs> the last podcast. I listened to that podcast uh, on my way to Nashville, actually. I'm sorry. 
Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, it was driving through Kentucky. It wasn't that bad compared to where I was. Yeah. The, uh, <clears throat> I would like to make, uh, well, okay. There's a lot, there's already a lot of material with which to deal here, but I do know, um, I, I think you've already started off by, Insulting my credibility as a baseball analyst, which you, I mean, granted, that's part I, of the I would call it accurately reflecting your credibility. <laughs> I would like to say, Dave Cameron, that uh, there has been a development in my consumption of Major League Baseball. Oh, uh, that you have some? Yes, you're right, that I have some to show for it. And it, it, it's almost entirely due to the Game Changer app. Oh, Are yeah, you, you like that, huh? I love this thing. Yeah. This is fantastic. Because then you can only watch like 30 seconds of a game at a time and, and that satiates you? Well, but you could do it for hours on end though because you're always going back and forth. This is by Dan Hirsch who runs, I believe, uh, the Baseball Gauge. Does any of this sound accurate? Yep. And uh, you are allowed uh, – I, I believe uh, Paul Swine wrote about it a week or two ago and before him Ben Lindbergh had written about it for The Ringer. Correct. And uh, yeah, you can you can see who you want to see, or if you if you just want to go back and forth to the highest leverage games, while also integrating championship leverage into that, uh, you you can do that as well. Yeah, it's basically a what a curated broadcast. It's fantastic. It's whip around action, except uh, you except right you you have the you have the power. Have either of you well, used it? CJ Mikowski in the whip around. Have you have either of you used it? No, no, I, well, so I never used the Red Zone or watched the Red Zone channel, I guess, for football because I don't care, but I, I kind of like the slow pace of a, the usual baseball game. I don't watch one just for the high leverage moments. I think it's kind of more, for, I don't know. I guess maybe it's worth trying because you'd never want to change anything you're used to at the beginning, right? But, uh, I haven't tried it. I don't think it's for me because I don't. No, there are things you want to change. If you have gonorrhea, you want to change that. Well, I can't speak for that experience, though, so, you know. It's oh, yeah, right. That's not what these classified medical files suggest. Well, apparently they're not classified enough. There are lots of problems. Do you, do you know how you, even you, by your own attestation – uh, Jeff, you're you're totally discontent with your own life. Uh, decreasingly discontent relative to I think five years ago working for Espionation and whatnot. So things have improved. Working for Fangraphs, I got things like these these half paid vacations in the middle of the season uh, that that my boss didn't only imp- approve but uh, insisted upon. Yes, this is pretty good. It's it's a little like I guess uh yeah it's paid leave uh, except I get this I. Have to, as a condition of this paid leave, spend time with Dave Cameron. Yeah. Right. Well, there's, there's, a, what is, the, what is the opposite of a silver lining? <laughs> On the upside, he spent spend time with Dave Cameron's dog. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Right. Adorable. I mean, most dogs are adorable. That's a, that's a good dog too. So is uh, um, the thing for this podcast to analyze some baseball? What, what comes in between all and none? It's some, right? It's some. This is the 50-50. This is like combining FIP war and RA9 war. Yeah, there you go. To make an illusion that, that my, that my ancestors would not understand at all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, no, well, I suppose I was starting with the game changer because of how, but I would also, I would also add with regard to the, uh, the virtues of that particular app. It's not necessarily high leverage situations. For example, uh, Jeff Sullivan, I know you are smitten. With a, with a, with a whole surfeit 
of relatively obscure relief pitchers. Yeah, as we all so, agree. But if you're just watching the game, like if you're just watching like a game, you're not going to necessarily know when Michael Givens is pitching for the Orioles. But the, this will whisk you away to a Michael Givens appearance. But I am aware of when the Orioles are in the seventh inning, which means that is when Michael Givens is pitching. So that was a bad example because he's very easy to, to isolate. You're difficult. <laughs> You're being difficult. I, you guys, okay, I agree with you. Uh, I am sure that the Game Changer app is a wonderful tool. Obviously, it is, uh, it has found a fan in you, someone who doesn't enjoy watching baseball ordinarily at all. So, I am not here to say that it is a, a bad app. I am just saying that I am pretty content with my own means of how I watch baseball. And so I don't think that I personally have much to gain from, from the app itself. It, well, I suppose I don't have much to gain from converting you either because what is it to me? Right. I mean, I'm already drifting around at will when I'm watching baseball, uh, in case you get tired of watching like Rockies Diamondbacks. Because you kind of question why you watched that game in the first place. It's true. In Kansas City, uh, Sullivan had like four games and like mini screens, and he kept switching the audio between them. So in like walking around in the other room, I would hear like, and that ball is hit three and two, <laughs> and then a commercial play. <laughs> it was really the worst audio experience in my life. Yeah. Uh, that like four games yeah. in one MLB TV, uh, I don't know. Mosaic is, I think, is what it's called. And when you have a good enough connection, it's a lot of fun. You can just watch four games at once, and uh, I have, I have no further point. <laughs> Very strong. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, so, so we know that you are uh, um, on this trip together, um, and I suppose that interests. It, it's probably interesting to someone uh, that. Uh, <laughs> To, Interesting delivery. To, uh, I guess, somewhat notable, not the most notable, but two somewhat notable members of the baseball analytical community are in the car together. Uh, um, what, how do you, what do you guys talk about when you're together? Cause I, I've, I have extended conversations with both of you. Cameron, I would say from my experience with talking with you, you are task oriented. I, I like, I like it when you are on the program because I can ask you a question. Uh, that we have not prepared, um, and you will you will be able to cite figures. For example, you have a, a great mind for remembering contracts and contract values. Um, Jeff, you're also pleasant to talk to uh, because um, you are prone to curious flights. This feels like we're on the dating uh, game. Like, are you going to pick Bachelor A or Bachelor B? Way there. <laughs> the answer is. The answer is none of the above already to begin with. Uh, but I'm curious as to uh, what direction your conversations take when you're faced with the prospect of, uh, you know, eastern – or sorry, western Kansas. I think that's that was the conversation. The western Kansas sucks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I talked about that. There was a little bit of talking about like, you know, Jeff, if you actually were to post during this trip, <laughs> uh, here's, here are some things that you should post about. There was some encouragement of him to work. Maybe. <laughs> This is not not part of the discussion when I agree to this trip, for the record. (laughs) But, you know, posts went up today, so that's not so bad. Uh, Some some baseball, because I don't – Dave and I don't often talk more – I don't know, maybe once every two weeks, I guess, even less uh, during the year. And as you said, Dave has a lot of – a good mind for remembering things. Mm -hmm. So when you're having conversations, I think most of the time, even when we're on a podcast and we're talking about baseball, it's easy to – 
like drift around on fan graphs or see what's going on. Uh, and it's not often that maybe you're talking about baseball with no internet access. So you're just kind of having a more theoretical conversation, which is, which is nice. And then the other half of it is like, Oregon's going to be nice. Kansas is terrible. Where can we get some fried chicken? All right. And you uh, answered, you answered most of those questions. It sounds like I was surprised at the amount of baseball discussion Sullivan wanted to have. I expected him to want to talk very little about baseball, but then like there would be a slight pause in the conversation and he would, Hey, what do you think about Nick Franklin? <laughs> I was just like, yeah, I hadn't thought about Nick Franklin. <laughs> I was driving through Kansas. Um, what do you think about Nick Franklin? Uh, I don't think my opinion of him has changed in the last three years. He is, as far as I know, unless he has dramatically changed, he is still a poor defensive middle infielder who can't hit left-handed pitching, which limits him to probably being a bench player. Nick Franklin this year, 824 OPS in the major leagues. Okay. Who knew? Who who genuinely knew? The guy who asked the question in the chat that caused you to bring it up in the car. That's the guy who knew. Yes, but uh, and then has your assessment of Brad Miller changed no, in the meantime? I, I've been infatuated and in love with Brad Miller forever. He is just justifying my belief in his bat, although apparently debunking my idea that he's not a terrible shortstop. <laughs> did you have uh, did you have him pegged for thirty home runs? No, no. This is a different kind of player than I thought he would be. This is a more sluggy. Uh, power hitter version, but I, you know, I think I thought he would play better defense and hit for a little less power, but be basically this good in a different form. You know, I was actually thinking just now in my own head, which is where I do most of my thinking, that because uh, uh, Brad Miller, of course, is one of the few, I believe, he's one of the few major leaguers not to wear batting gloves. Correct. Does that seem right? Yeah. And another one of the few major leaguers uh, not to wear batting gloves is Evan Gaddis. Mm. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, except those players are not very similar. Except they're almost identical now. Yeah. Uh, Brad Miller has become Evan Gattis. Not a thing. Yeah. Coming. Um, the, they, uh, the defensive value, you would have assumed that Brad Miller would uh, offer a lot more, although he's, um, this, the numbers do not suggest that he does. Yeah, who knew that the Gaddis would remain at a premium position longer? Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, can you find uh, two players more alike than than Brad Miller and Evan Gaddis, or another player who's more like Evan Gaddis than Brad Miller? Maybe Tommy Joseph. Well, that's interesting because of the positional possibilities. Yeah, I mean Joseph is like kind of a not really catcher with power, right? Yeah, I don't know if he's played even one game at catcher as a major leaguer. Yeah, I think the concussion thing might have ended his catching. Oh, yeah. Can we talk about Matt Lecroy? Does he count? You can do I'm Matt Lecroy. But I feel like we haven't had enough Matt Lecroy talk in the podcast. Lecroy? Lecroy? Lecroy. Lecroy? Lecroy. You know, speaking of guys yeah. who wore batting gloves, Jorge Posada didn't wear batting gloves and was also a fringy defensive catcher with power. That's true. Although much better control of the plate, I think. Isn't that right? Right. Certainly not the same swing and miss uh, uh, as a different kind of hitter than Evan Gattis. Moises Alou, of course, of course, also did not wear batting gloves, but peed on them. But did not, not pee on his batting gloves, peed on his hands. That's right. That's, yeah. That's why you never wanted to shake hands with Moises Alou after a home run. That's right. So here's a question. Uh of all of the players, is there? I mean, we've we seem to have accidentally found some similarities between the four of them. Um, and actually, Alou, although Alou was a high contact guy, if I'm not mistaken, that's true. 
Do have you guys like anecdotally or otherwise heard any reports of players who refuse to use batting gloves as to why that's the case? No. That's right. My entire answer to your question. <laughs> yeah. Jeff Sullivan, would you like to No, Dave took my answer. <laughs> <laughs> this is an example of you not bringing up a question in advance, uh doing no preparation for the podcast and us not being able to bail you out of it. Okay, hold on. I have a Krasnick article from a from a year ago. Uh, you're going to need to talk for a minute because I'm still searching through it. Uh, okay. Pretty got the rid of his batting gloves last year. Steven Vogt doesn't use them. Uh, Evan Gaddis, Preston Tucker, and Colby Rasmus, uh, no batting gloves. Going with Matt Carpenter, which we forgot we should have known. Will Myers, we should have known. Uh, Justin Bauer, I can keep going. Blake Swihart, who doesn't really use much of anything these days. <laughs> Connor Glaspie, who I... Uh, Delano to Shields and Francisco Cervelli is uh, that's cool. There's a lot of catchers on the list. Yeah, there are a lot of catchers in the list. Weinhart, Cervelli, uh-huh. uh, Gaddis, Gaddis, theoretically. Vote, uh-huh. uh, vote, yeah. Prince, like Prince Fielder. Yeah. <laughs> but what, like I wonder four of fifteen names or something as catchers. That's interesting. You think catchers have? They have. Uh, they must have a. They use their hands in a different way than every other position, right? Maybe their just hands are so broken from <laughs> catching them all over and over. There's like these things don't need protection. They're they're beyond repair. Right. Or or the whatever shock I receive from the bat is uh is nothing compared to the Relative fact that to the catching 102. Right. Everyone knows now. Or maybe they like the shock from holding the bat barehanded because they figure it actually makes their hands feel alive for once. Yeah. Uh. Let's see. Uh. Here is a question. <laughs> the of the ten top players, the ten top uh, uh, batters, field players by by wins above replacement, which of them? How many of them do you think appeared on Baseball America's Top 100 list at some point? Uh, well, Chris Bryant definitely did. Corey mm-hmm. Seager definitely did. This is position players or or combined? Just position players. Mike Trout definitely did. Yep. It would Altuve have? No, I don't, no, I don't think Altuve so. did. So. Um, Francisco Lindor definitely did. Is he still in the top? He did, yes. Is Adam Eaton still having a crazy yeah. defensive year? Adam Eaton's on that list. Manny Machado, he definitely did. You guys, have, you guys are really nailing this. Uh, Josh Donaldson probably didn't. Mm-hmm. Oh, second. Uh, 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 Dozier is Brian Dozier up there? He's crept. Yeah, this is as of last night. He was ninth. Wow, right. Yeah, so, he, so he wouldn't have been on yeah, there. Yeah, no, he wouldn't have even been drafted. No, he was. Uh, of course, he was drafted, yeah, but yeah, nobody yeah. believed he was good. And you're, I think you've actually only neglected one player, but um, you both know who who it is. American League, so one in the American League. We're missing. Mookie, we say oh, Mookie, Mookie Betts? Betts, of course. Yes, Mookie Betts was a top hundred guy, right? Yeah, uh, he was right. The uh, he he was sort of strange, I guess. Uh, in they some cases, there, but they weren't like you know. In love with him, but they put him on the list. Right. So uh, you named ten players. You named all. You named all um, all the relevant guys. Um, and seven of them. Yeah. Seven of them appeared at one point. Donaldson, um, Dozier, and Altuve for the outliers. Yes, exactly. And uh, so there were at one point there was there was two guys who were number one. That's Bryant and Seager. Yeah. Seager this year, in fact. Uh, Trout reached number two. Um, uh, Lindor reached number nine, Machado number eleven, Eden number seventy-three, and uh, Betts was number seventy-five before he 
before he had his uh, his rookie year. What would you what would you bet is the average in any case? And I and Jeff, I always uh, I think back always to um, a great post you wrote, or at least a very useful one. Uh, looking at you asked the question reversed. You said how many good players were good prospects? Yeah. And do you remember do you remember what the basic percentages were? Oh no, I don't. Like uh, sixty seven thirty three, right? Yeah, I think it was about a third of players didn't show up. Uh, I don't remember if there was a difference between pitchers and hitters. Right. So this year, what's interesting is that among the, those top ten we just named, seven of the ten uh, were on a top were were considered uh, top one hundred prospects at one point. I think it's like right in line with what Jeff found. Yeah, and you, I mean, you look at the pitching side, and like Kluber still is really good, and he was never on one of the lists, and. Whoever, like Jose Quintana is up there. He was never on a list. Danny, Danny Duffy would have been on a list probably. Yeah, yeah, he was a top prospect. Yeah. Well, I mean, cause I, it's interesting, you know, if you say like good players, and I think you set the threshold for maybe at three wins or something for like a good season. Yeah, that's right. Do you think that, uh, I guess I was, I was, I would maybe be surprised if that also applied to like the top 10 players by war. Every season, although uh, perhaps the perhaps the trend continues throughout even the best players as well. I don't know. Would would you be surprised or not to see that um, roughly three out of ten, four out of ten players on the, in the top ten WAR uh, by in any given year would not have been on a top prospect list? I mean, I'd guess that the best players would have been more likely to show up just because you kind of have to have the overall skill set to be that good, and it's hard to hide that many skills in the minor leagues. I think in a case like I'm, I'm thinking about Brian Dozer because I pulled up his page. He hit 16 career minor league home runs. 16. I think he said that in the last week and a half in the majors. Uh, he basically developed one skill in the majors and that allowed him to become an above average player. And that would have been easier to hide. But I figure someone like Chris Bryant, for example, who does everything, uh, well, or Corey Seager, who does everything well, in order to climb up the war leaderboard that high, at least for a position player, I think you need the, the kind of all around skill set that, it would be hard for an evaluator to ignore. On the pitching side, I'm less convinced because you can just develop a pitch and become amazing. Or you can just add 12 miles an hour to fastball. Or you can add 12 miles per hour. I wonder who's added the most since draft day. Syndergaard's got to be in the consideration, right? Because he was low to mid-90s, even like a couple of years ago, and now mm-hmm. he's 98 to 102. Right. And, like, I guess Strasburg isn't a great case because when he was drafted, he threw 100. But, like, when he came to college, I think he was yeah. doing, like, 86. Yeah. To go to to, um, to continue the thought that you were having there, Jeff, uh, the, the, this idea of hiding the tools, mm-hmm. um, it's it's probably also the case that a lot of those top prospects were also or are also frequently drafted out of high school um, because the toolsiest players tend to be drafted out of high school. Mm-hmm. But I suppose uh, somewhat uh, notably, Chris Bryant uh, did go to college. Do, do either of you have any sense of of what sort of prospect? It's okay if you don't. Uh, but do you have any sense of what prospect what sort of prospect he was? As as a uh, a high school player, or do we have a sense that he get he um, sort of improved dramatically as a as a he collegiate player? Because he, he was only going to high school player. I feel like I read some article about the team that drafted him out of high school and how he got away, but he was basically unsignable. Uh, but I don't remember which team that was or what round he was drafted. In. Right. Okay. Jeff's no, no, I just don't know. Okay, you could look it up I'm on, on the computer to... that you're googling. Yeah, that would be fun. Um, I, I would also think that there would be some correlation there. Um, I wonder if at any given year on the, among the top 10 position players by war, do you think that you're likely to find more high schoolers or more college players? 
and then I guess uh, international free agents is another consideration. What do you think the What do you think the typical distribution? Probably would be? like fifty percent high schoolers, thirty percent college guys, and twenty percent international. But that's like you know just numbers I made up. Brian was drafted by the Blue Jays. It looks like you know what they need is more right-handed power. <laughs> I was talking about this with Eric Longenig in um, in a couple different contexts, but one of them was. Uh, it, it, it applies to Brian Dozier, certainly, uh, probably Josh Donaldson as well. Uh, it applies to this problem of, uh, in terms of assessing a player's future, if there's this swing that seems to create instant value for players, uh, being able to, I guess, I mean, how how do you, how how would you identify a player who who has the most to gain? By adopting that sort of swing, or, or and whether he's able to adopt it at all. I think I heard that. Did you know Jake? I was thinking about something else while you were asking that question, but I think this is, we actually talked about this yesterday in the car a little bit, where we were thinking about the anecdotal evidence of guys seemingly swinging, I don't know how else to say, up more, swinging for power more. And we were trying to think of ways to identify uh, potential candidates to improve, and I think you're looking for, like Dave brought up the, the high line drive rate, kind of higher ground ball Right. Also, so I think if the idea I was thinking about is if you're looking at the stack cast information, you want a, a pretty high uh, exit velocity, but you you're probably looking for a lower angle. So I was like, Mookie Betts, I think is actually still kind of a ground ball guy, but I kept thinking like Anthony Rendon, uh, he probably has the ability to if he'd swung up a little more, put the ball in the air a little more. We know he can hit the ball hard, and he's already been a really 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 good hitter uh, as sort of like a 50% ground ball guy. But as uh, as Dave says his piece, I can look up some more names right now. Yeah, I mean, I think we talked yesterday about, like, the Matt Carpenter, Daniel Murphy, Jose Altuve kind of triumvirate of second basemen who have, like, shockingly hit for power, and Mookie Betts would have been in that group if he was still a second baseman. But it seems to be, like, that kind of maybe undersized guy is the one who's been considered to not have this ability that has continually shown that they actually do, right? Like, guys who play second base are generally not the best athletes, and they're usually shorter. That's, like, one of the sorting options for second base is, are you under six feet tall? Um, and so it seems like these kinds of guys get written off as, like, they don't have the physical prowess to hit for power, except for so many of them now are that I think that that, idea is probably worth challenging. I guess a pretty obvious one would be like Eric Hosmer. He's always been a high ground ball guy, but he clearly has a lot of power in his bed. Or like if Christian Yelich ever, ever put a ball in the air, then he, he could stand, he could be a 30 home run hitter. I'm going to guess without, uh, without doing himself too much harm. And the fascinating thing is, right, there's a lot of these, like, tall first basemen who've, over the years, been projected to hit for a lot of power who never did, right? So, like, James Loney and Casey Kochman. Like, this is a pretty common skill set of, like, the six foot four, you know, underpowered first baseman, the Lyle Overbays of the world, who, you know, when scouts look at them, they're like, well, there's power in there. you just got to learn to elevate. And a lot of times they haven't learned to elevate. What? Right, so it can't be just as, it can't be just as simple, right, as... It, I mean, you can't just tell someone like hit the ball in the air more. Like that's not that's not the solution. It has to be some kind of physical ability that they have that other players don't have. I don't think we want to say like Casey Kochman and James Loney are just incapable of making this adjustment mentally or knowing they should. It's probably that Altuve and Betts and Carpenter and Murphy had some kind of physical ability that we haven't yet identified. Right. There must be. I, and I know that uh, like when Eric Longenhagen uh, writes reports. Uh, certainly, when when I would have uh, longer conversations with Kyla McDaniel about it, there were 
um, I know that there were always sort of aspects of the swing to which, um, you know, Kylie would point, for example, regarding hands, you know, the speed of the hands. Um, it, I don't know. Maybe there is a certain type of athleticism. And I know I've also seen certain like different types of athleticism cited. There's sort of in-the-box athleticism, which I think Longenhagen maybe discussed with regard to Dan Vogelbach, that uh, obviously does not have what you would characterize as traditional athleticism. His 40 time is probably not great. My guess is that his vertical is not particularly strong. Um, he's more of a horizontal is what he is. And, uh, but, but he also cited a certain amount of athleticism, um, in the swing, which is he's able to manipulate the bat essentially. And, and I wonder if this idea, which albeit for me is a bit vague, the idea of manipulating the bat is somehow is somehow central to picking up this skill. Now I'm thinking of Dan Vogelbach, like sending like 12:30 a.m. texts to his bats, so like you never call me anymore. Like I miss you. Like sending super manipulative texts. That's kind of a that would be a fun like SNL skit. What if he said like, "Oh, you're just like your father." Yeah, that seems pretty manipulative, don't you think? I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of different manipulative comments Dan Vogelbach could make to his bat. Yeah. But did you want to answer the question too? No, I just wanted to make fun of the premise. Uh, I, don't, I don't really know what to say. I mean, that seems like a good question for Eric Longenhagen the next time you have him on a podcast. Well, he makes fortnightly appearances. Okay, well, so. maybe next fortnight, ask Eric. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I was wondering if one of the site's premier analysts had anything to uh, include. I guess I'm barking up the wrong analyst. Yeah, for sure. There's only one one entity allowed to bark at uh, at these analysts this week, and uh, she's been doing it not too often. She's laying on the floor at the moment. I put the leash on her to calm her down. That's working pretty well. Here's a question. Okay. Two years ago, uh, Fangraphs uh, presented to Clayton Kershaw the inaugural what Fangraphs Player of the Year award. We didn't actually present it to him. We were planning on presenting it to him and having it like 3D printed, and it broke a lot of times. <laughs> okay. We actually never gave it to him. We never gave it to him. Last year, <laughs> uh, Fangraphs uh, did not present a Player of the Year award. Yeah, I think uh, I think maybe the first year was an experiment. And what, what did we sense that the the experiment was not? Well, what? I think the, tro- the trophy breaking multiple times might have been like a sign from the universe. Like, don't do this. The world doesn't need more awards. <laughs> <laughs> the um, so so. Do you think that what that, was that really just how you feel about it? like it just was inconvenient because the award was breaking? Well, I mean, it's already hard to work up the motivation to write about the awards that do exist. So, like, to go for another one. What uh, about ignoring the awards that do exist? Well, that's what I was trying to do, but then Dave lectured me. Yeah, uh, that's right. So I think like the original concept for the um, kind of Fangraphs Player of the Year award was that we were going to try and create an award that didn't already exist to some degree. Like we weren't going to care about valuable. We weren't going to care about league or position. We were just going to be like, this guy was the best player of the year. Uh, but then like Baseball America does the same thing and Sporting News does the same thing. And I think there's like six other awards that do the same thing. And that, so after we did the first one, it was like, you know, this is actually kind of already a crowded field. I didn't, I, I don't know that the Fangraphs Player of the Year award added value to the awards, uh, season. Right. Okay. 
That's yeah, fair, that's a fair comment. Realistically, I think if, uh, a fair criticism of it was it should just be called the Mike Trout Award, and we just <laughs> give it to Mike Trout every year because that's what we would have done. The well, on that topic, of course, last week I think at the suggestion of uh, of contributor Corinne Landry, does that sound right? Yeah. We uh, we began a series of posts in which uh, authors made a, a case for. Well, I think we covered maybe four players, five players for AL MVP. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, I think a number of commenters picked up on this. And uh, I think really anyone who would have read uh, who would have read the pieces would pick up is that after Neil Weinberg covered Mike Trout first, that the obligation for all of the other writers was to find, in most cases, a somewhat obscure reason for why it should not be Mike Trout. Right. I think we should have had Neil go last. It probably would have made sense. Uh, it probably would have made sense. Although it did create an interesting experiment for the next authors. And I will say that while I think that all of them handled it quite well, August Fagerstrom, uh, who uh, wrote about Josh Donaldson, I think uh, he took the most interesting tact. I think ultimately his argument was that you had to pick Josh Donaldson for the children. <laughs> uh, but he made the point uh, in, a, in a lot, of, and he cited in particular an appearance by Donaldson on the, the MLB Network, uh, providing a, a, an illustration of his swing, his, his swing mechanics, and the philosophy behind it. And August suggested that uh, Josh Donaldson, as perhaps one of the uh, poster boys for for the new swing, and uh, you know, avoiding ground balls, etc. Uh, in some ways did fulfill the criteria of the MVP award as it's stated by the BBWAA. He did, he did fulfill some of the criteria um, in that I think he had uh, what a larger than usual impact on the game um, because of the way his swing his swing was uh, – the, the sort of influence that that approach had had. But did, could either of you or would you uh, attempt uh, for the amusement of the crowds – uh, make a case for someone other than Mike Trout for MVP? No. Uh, uh, <laughs> no. I mean, it, I think it was a worthwhile endeavor to kind of yeah. uh, show how thin the other cases were. Uh, but I think the reality is, like, Mike Trout is having the best year of any player in baseball uh, for the fifth consecutive year, I think. And uh, the only argument that will keep him from winning is that his teammates are terrible. I saw some article recently that was trying to support Jose Altuve, and he was checking off all these boxes like, oh, Altuve hits doubles and homers, and he steals bases, and he drives and runs, and he does all these things. And and for someone to fill up all these different categories, he's got to be the MVP. And it's like, well, Mike Trout kind of has been filling yeah. up those categories every year for like five or six years. So there's just so much so much emphasis on trying to find something new. And it's not just in the AL MVP race, although that's where it's most manifest, but just sort of, you know, to talk about society these days and how short people's attention spans are. And and people are so compelled to try to find something new and different and edgy that they get bored with what's established and the best. And Mike Trout is the best, and he's been the best for five years. And you don't have to try to be hipster with the award races when the answer is staring you in the face. Very politely. Right. Uh, uh, actually, Paul Swyden did make the case. I think he made the case, case not necessarily as to why – and I forget who he's writing about. Maybe Mookie Betts. Mookie Betts mm-hmm. yeah. um, but it's a bit – it's sort of immaterial actually about whom he was writing. Uh, he pointed out um, – uh, he pointed to a brief excerpt from Neil's piece 
not necessarily why uh, uh, why Mookie Betts should win, but why Mike Trout probably won't, which is that I think something like the last 13 MVP awards have gone to, you know, the best player on a playoff team. Right. That's now the de facto. The, the default uh, criteria for the award. I mean, I think we right. know Trout, Trout won't win. Yeah, but he should. Right. It's just the same argument we've been making for every year the Angels have sucked. Yeah. Is he going to – I mean, is he going to is – it, is it historical, the the relationship between how good he is to how, <laughs> how unrecognized he is for that excellence? Well, he's only unrecognized by the MVP award, right? Like – I think everybody in baseball acknowledges that Mike Trout's the best player. Nobody thinks that there's anyone at his level. Uh, I think, I guess, my memory is, like, in the 1990s, like, Michael Jordan was obviously the superlative basketball player of his time, and maybe of all time, and they kept giving MVP awards to anyone else because it was boring to give it to Jordan every year. So, like, one year they gave it to Carl Malone, and uh, I think Charles Barkley got one one year. And, like, these guys weren't Michael Jordan, but it was just... They didn't want to give it to Jordan every year because that was boring. And, like, uh, Trout is basically in the same scenario where, like, people will look for any reason to not just be like, yep, still Mike Trout. Well, because they have to – was it because you have to produce content? Uh, I mean, that's part of it. And I think, that, you know, there's a resistance to um, just stating the obvious. Like, we're supposed to – all of us who write on on the internet or in newspapers or whatever, we're supposed to say something that the reader couldn't have figured out for themselves. But, like, Mike mm-hmm. Trout's the best player in baseball. You don't need us for that. How much content – and this applies, of course, not only to our own site but to others too. How much content – but we can use our own site. How much content uh, would appear at Fangraphs if we only wrote about uh, on, on subjects that were necessary? None. As – <laughs> right. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Ask that question. So, 1998. Uh, this is the best I can come up with. 1998. The Mariners are bad, but Alex Rodriguez is the best young player in baseball, and the best. The, this is the Juan Gonzalez. This is the Juan Gonzalez here. So, I mean, in a sense, MVP voting has gotten a little better because Mike Trout won't finish ninth <laughs> in the MVP voting this year. Uh, but, you know, he's not going to win. So MVP voting has gotten better to the point where now the best player can just finish in second place. And, that, that will, and he's done that. Has he done that in every season he hasn't won? I think he has never finished lower than second. Sorry, Mike Trout. It is it is interesting if we were going to, like, psychologically evaluate this idea that, like, you can't be the most valuable if your team isn't good, but you can be the second most valuable. Like, logically, that makes no sense, right? Yeah. Like, it's an either-or. Like, either the wins that Mike Trout provides to the Angels are useless because they would have been bad with him or without him, which is an argument that people make all the time, in which case he should not be on your ballot. Or the wins he produces have value, and therefore he can be the most valuable. So he should be one or not on the ballot. And anyone who puts him anywhere else is... Uh, engaging in a logical fallacy. Right. Like, if you want to take this to the extreme, then if you want to... You figure Chris Bryant is the opposite problem as Mike Trout, where his team is too good. And so then if you figure that teams that are too good or teams that are too bad shouldn't have any MVP candidates, then you're picking MVP candidates from, what, like... The 87-win teams, basically. The teams as bad as the Royals and as good as the, I guess, Blue Jays, and those are the teams that are eligible. Just right, where, where the marginal wins, the marginal wins are most important. Yeah, and I, I sort of understand it, but like the point, the point isn't, I don't think, just to win the World Series. I know that's what everybody wants to do, but I think the point is to just have as strong a season as you can. 
and win as many games. And it's not like 29 teams end the year disappointed because they didn't win the championship. So uh, as much as I, I like things, like I'm interested in something like, what, championship probability added or whatever it's called, which is a, a neat little statistic, but I think that that misses an awful lot if you're trying to use that as a as an MVP determinant, which is essentially what you're doing when you're talking about only taking players from contending teams. And what if is it would you exclude Mike Trout from MVP consideration if he was also uh, if he were also the GM that had constructed the current Angels roster? I mean, that would make him more impressive <coughs> to me. I guess that would. Hmm. I mean, it's the most valuable player. Right? Well, when, when did he be, or, when did he take over as GM? When did he start constructing the roster? That's a good point. Well, how would it affect how would it affect your assessment of him? Well, like, if, like if he had just been named, then he was out of luck. He wasn't going to be able to do any better than he did. You know, like, do you blame Mike Trout for Garrett Richards getting hurt? I mean, he voters do. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Do we, would wait? Would he receive more or less credit for you? Say he had been. Say he was hired a GM the same year as his rookie season. Yeah. It's not the most valuable executive award. Yeah. Yeah. Carson, idiot. It's right there in the name. <laughs> Most valuable player. Sure. The Cy Young Award, though, do you not take into account offense sometimes? Yeah, but that's still the 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 job description of the player is the pitcher has to pitch and field and hit. So that's in, in his responsibilities as a player. It's nowhere in there is it, you know, pitch, hit, field, and make trades. You're right. We are giving way too much time to a ridiculous thought. Yeah, that's right. Uh, last, this will be the last thing I address is Jeff. How did you not get out of jury duty? How did I not get out of jury duty? How did you not get out of jury duty? He didn't even attempt to. He said well, three days off. This is great. Well, so in in Oregon, in California, when I got called, it was a one day service, and when I was called in Oregon a few years ago, it was a one day service. This time it was two, and I went in. And I won't go through all the particulars, but I was called up almost immediately. I was called up to the first case, the first trial that was taking place, and so they called up 39 of us, and they were going to select 13, 12 jurors and an alternate, and they put, uh, from the pool of 39 people they called up, they put, they seated 13 people. So essentially, they formed a uh, a first draft jury, and then they questioned all of us, but because I was already put in, like, seat number five or something, uh, the onus was on me, I guess, to demonstrate that I was not capable of serving but they said it was going to be like a two-day trial, so they didn't expect it to go any longer than that. So at that point, I didn't really have any reason to try to get out because I'd much rather sit in a jury than sit in the waiting room waiting to be called up to a jury. Uh, I did tell them that I was not going to be able to serve beyond, I think, three days, but that was not going to matter because the case ended pretty quickly. You should have been a Mike Trout truther, and you should have said, like, I believe this trial should find Mike Trout AL MVP. This jury should find it, and then they would have sent you home. Well, so they and asked you could have asked uh, basic questions of everyone who was in there, and actually the third question was, do you support Mike Trout as the American League MVP? But it happened to be a, an Angels fan judge, so it all it all kind of worked out. Um, it, it's my understanding, and I've gotten out of uh, jury duty quickly before by using this same uh, strategy. Mm-hmm. If you just express a great deal of enthusiasm for the law, you will be removed from the jury. Or if you if you just say yes, I. Or what? You look like you. Yeah, you never stood a chance. Did so, you did you wear no, but, a white T-shirt and trucker hat to jury duty? 
If you just say, oh, I'm very interested in legal matters, then they do not want you there. I I mean, listen, I I also lived in Portland, Oregon. Same, uh, probably went to the same courthouse as you, Uh Jeff. Uh And we were sitting there. They said, "Could do you feel as though there's anything obstructing you?" And I was like, "No, I'm so excited by law. I'm excited to be on the jury." And they're like, "All right, you're excused." Okay, but the they asked uh, one of the one of the lawyers actually asked people to like raise their hands if they were excited or like nervous to be there or excited to be there or or jazzed. She didn't use the word jazzed, but we know what you meant. Uh, to be there, and several people did raise their hands. They were excited to fulfill their civic duty. You know, like good citizens who didn't try to get out of jury duty, like you. And and many of those people remained. So I think they wanted people in this case. You you were kicked out for reasons other than your answer, and I think we we all know we all know what it was. Mm-hmm. No pants. <laughs> <laughs> I will do it. You're you are unfit to make decisions. Okay, uh, scale of 0 to 10, how successful has this program been? Negative 3. Negative 3. Jeffrey? 4. Well, hold on. What was the purpose? What's the end game here? I don't know. As an experiment to see what would happen. I don't think it's a very interesting premise. I think you're probably right. Yeah, you wouldn't get any NSF funding for this. I think. The- well, you know, here's. I mean, here's the other premise: is that this podcast happens twice a week, and both of you guys typically appear on it. One of you once a week, one of you once a month. So, because you were going to be together, I thought it might be a novel, might be a novel approach, and also a necessary one to have you on. Mm-hmm. Mm, I'm thinking it was a bad idea. I don't think it was a bad idea. I think it was just an uninteresting idea. Maybe no poor execution of a good idea. It's also possible. Yeah, we have well, of course, this is only- today on the ringer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go listen to that. What questions do they ask you? What yeah, questions do other podcasts? Interleague play, because the American League continues to dominate interleague play. Oh, that's so boring. <laughs> I like I like Ben I and Michael. I disagree Bullock. with you, but it was at least something that was somewhat interesting to discuss. I guess. Whatever. 20, 30 minutes is not hard to talk about the topic. No, it's not. It's not. We're, we're now at four. We've got to get out of jury duty. We're belaboring it. Wait, Dave, Dave, have you ever been called to jury duty? No. No one wants my opinion on anything. Oh, God. That's probably for Carson, wasn't it? All right. You guys are excused. Uh, well, I'll say goodbye to you now. Stick around for a moment after that. Let's see. How do we, uh, how do, we do this? Let's see. That has been... Um, yeah, that's been uh, it's been managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. Dave, thank you. You're welcome. It's been what senior editor, a senior editor at Fangraphs, Jeff Sullivan. Jeff, thank you. Thank you. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. <laughs> <laughs>